0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Shukri Rights podcast with your host, Shukri Writes. Happy Fourth of July to all of you, wherever you may be and where, however you may be spending it. Just make sure that you are being safe, responsible. Don't be an idiot like anyone who may be out there deciding that, hey, it'd be a great idea to jump off a ledge of, a, of some sort of a launching pad into a lake somewhere in New England. But what what do I know? But... Without further ado, my guest today is the co-host of Gresham Keith Show on Wei, and I have been a longtime fan of his. Believe it or not, since he was with the Sports Hub, so Rich Keith is here with me today on this podcast.
1: Rich, what's going on, man? How's it going? Yes. How's it going? Yeah, I'm, I, it's going great. Happy Fourth of July to you and to everybody listening as well. And uh, thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. I. I cannot be more excited to have you on. And seriously,
0: I, I don't know what it is, but something about that mic that you have. Sounds it, good, right? It sounds amazing. Like, yeah, good, oh, good. like oh my goodness. Like, and then not to mention, and for those who are watching, this, watching the podcast via um, YouTube, I am very envious of the, all the comics you got, like Justice League, Amazing Super, oh, Spider-Man and X-Men. Like, take us back into how did you fall in love with comics?
1: Yeah. So I am still a child is as what you <laughs> behind me, a man child. <laughs> that's ad. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And it is, I mean, obviously sports is a huge, huge lifelong passion of mine, but right there with it is all of this dork stuff, which is why I do the dork podcast. And so I got comic book stuff, video game stuff. I got these Funko pops behind me. Like I just, I love all this stuff, like Marvel and DC and, you know, Star Wars. I am such a a, a dork nerd for all that stuff, man, that I love talking about both. And I I feel like I talk about it as passionately. Like I can, I can argue Batman versus Iron Man (laughs) as much as I could Jordan versus LeBron. Like it's the same kind of debate for me.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. So let me ask you this in a battle for the survival of earth. Okay. Who are you taking with you to battle? are you taking um, Iron Man or are you going to take with you Batman?
1: So that's a good question because neither one on their own have superpowers, right? So they both kind of rely on the technology that they have. I just feel like Batman with his gadgets, he's been up against so much. I feel like he might even be a stronger leader as well. Maybe he could get, he could form a better team as good as Iron Man is Iron Man's incredible. And, uh, the whole Marvel run was was great, but I think I would still lean towards Batman. I feel like that guy's got an answer for everything. He's also the world's greatest yeah. detective. So if something sure. happens and you need to solve a crime of some sort, he's, he's your man. <laughs> <laughs> Batman, look, I have an affinity for Batman
0: because... Batman for me has always been that superhero in which that as you mentioned, he's always had the Batmobile, but mm-hmm. then he's he has this ability to get himself out of just about every fickle, every situation imaginable. Iron Man, it just it just seems like he's indestructible. Like you could, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think the thing about both of them too is that they are similar in the sense that they're billionaires. Like they they just have so much money that they can throw at it. So neither one of them can fly on their own. Neither one of them have superhuman strength. Neither one of them have any of that. But they are just so beyond with the technology and like Iron Man suits and everything that he can do. It oh, is yeah. unlike okay. any, anybody else. So, but if you got him out of the suit, a yeah, regular guy, yeah, just a regular guy. <laughs> Probably wouldn't do all that well in a, in a regular fight, but uh he's always in the suit and he always really. Is- so
0: you yeah. think he's, he's he's not as powerful without
1: the suit? hundred oh, percent not. 100% Come on, not. yeah, he needs he's, the suit. He's, he's he's as powerful I think with the suit. Iron Man? No, he needs the suit. Without the <laughs> suit, it's just regular guys, just you or me walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs>
0: they think. I mean, I mean, I, okay, I get that that the helmet, the thing that he that he yeah. has, like you know plays a big part out of it but but hey listen if you were to challenge either one of them to to a wing eating contest mm. which one which one would you taking
1: i think i could probably beat them both in a wing eating contest but you can't I, you I, can could. I couldn't i don't think you can now do you are you more of a, a quantity of wing or are you the this really spicy hot wing i love i like i really love both but gun okay. to the head um i'm gonna go with spicy okay that's the challenge is spicy that's a fun challenge i am in on that i like i like spicy i like hot food same but i'm not, I'm not somebody that says i could do any of them because i i've run into some certain sauces that are just like unedible <laughs> you, you're kidding, like you're like who's putting this on anything it's not enjoyable <laughs> i like it when it's hot but not when it's just you know gonna gonna mess you up for like a few days like that's not worth it so wait what sauces for you are like the untouchables if you if you will so there's there's certain places that you can go that they when when you go to a restaurant and they have like nine different sauces right they have like nine different hot wing like there's like different like wing places you can go to Mm -hmm. and i feel like there's probably six or seven that are edible, like the couple are like no heat, and then it kind of builds, and then there's like you know a four or five, but then there's some at the end, and they all call them different stuff too, like uh, soup side sauce or whatever. It's all these different ones, but I had one where I I remember I I, I got up to go, and I had to literally do the thing where you drink like a gallon of milk after because uh, it was, just, it was so insanely hot. that it, was, it wasn't even enjoyable. It wasn't like ooh that's hot, but it was like no this is poison in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know the the fact that you mentioned having the need to drink a gallon of milk reminds me of the infamous ghostly ghostly pepper challenge from 2011. Right. You remember that? Mm-hmm. The whole thing that was like, well, let me just. I actually partook in it. How'd that go? Not well no. at all. Like no. I thought I was the, the tough macho man. Like man, this is nothing. Oh, this is not a big deal. I hit that first seed. Oh. <laughs> down yeah. i went to the knees really like yeah like like i was like yo i i need something like water was not going to do it like what, oh, no. oh no you need milk like milk like. A of it.
1: <laughs> it's your only hope it's your only hope at that it's, point it
0: was the only saving grace <laughs> i had otherwise <laughs> that's why
1: right it's stuff like that where i know I say I like hot stuff, but I understand there's a limit. Like, you can't go too far, or you're just going to be, like you said, you're, gonna be, you're down in the fetal position, and you're like, I thought you were enjoying some wings. You're like, no, I am now sick to my stomach, and I need milk. Yeah, that's not fun. That's
0: not fun. Remember, um, I, I'm mad because I can't remember the name of the show, but there was a video that came out, I think it was either last, no, it was two years, it was two summers ago, with Idris Elba, he's trying these wings. Oh, hot he, ones. He, that's what that's what the name of the show was hot ones yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. that show for some reason it it captured my imagination i'm like you know what? that looks easy but until i saw him get to that one flavor right he was like (laughs) what the i'm like man if he can't handle it like i don't know about me
1: (laughs) not not going there like i'll be like "I, i respect i respect your struggle with it over there i'm not even gonna try it
0: Yeah. Uh, Oh my goodness. But in the spirit of summertime topics. Yes. What has surprised you the most about the 2021 Boston Red Sox?
1: (laughs) Aside from everything, uh, I I thought this was going to be a 500 team and they're on pace for 100 wins. I mean, it is, it's unbelievable what they've done. If I had to pick out anything, it'd be the rotation because I thought the rotation was going to be really weak. I didn't like a lot of the guys. They were also very injury prone. And the fact that Nick Pavetta, Martin Perez have been as good as they've been. Yeah. Nathan Evaldi, yeah. I, I never really doubted Evaldi as being a good pitcher. It was just how many starts was he going to miss? I feel like the guy's hurt all the time. And he, he's been out there every single time. And even though Rodriguez has struggled and Richards has struggled as of late with all the sticky stuff and all that, was, those guys have been out there every day and they've been really, really good. In fact, there's been so many times where the lineup has let those guys down rather than the other way around. And so the fact that this uh, this five-man rotation has been as good as they are, that that's probably the biggest surprise out of what has been a very surprising season, for sure.
0: Wow. I, you know, one of the things I talked about prior to the start of the season was The rotation, my assessment of the Red Sox going into the 2021 season was rotation. How are they going to fare? I never worried about the offense. My question was, listen, how is Garrett Richards going to fare pitching in Boston? Because I look at two dynamics here. His ability to pitch a whole season and the market that he pitches in. It matters. We, We should have learned from David Price. He could not handle the intensity and the pressure of pitching in Boston early in his Red Sox tenure. So I wonder if the same thing for Gary, Gary Richards, was he going to be able to handle it well? And then the other part of it was the health of the health of, um, of Nathan Ivaldi. Ivaldi was a guy that even when he was with the Yankees, even when he was with the, with the Marlins, he could throw 95, 96, 97 miles per hour. But the reality was, is his arm going to fall off? Right. Are we going to have to, you know, play the play the role of let's reattach the arm on a on a, on an injured superhero? Like, <laughs> and I say that I say that jokingly, but seriously. But the, there was question marks going into the 2021 season, and now you're about to get Chris L, who looked really good the other day, pitching to live batters at Fenway Park. What are your thoughts on the prospects of Chris L returning to the Red Sox and the impact he could potentially have?
1: Yeah, Cora was so high on him, you know, and, and Cora, I feel like he's usually pretty honest. Like, I don't think he would go too far overboard. And uh, my expectations are still pretty low. Like when he was dealing with the injuries and even when he went down a couple of years ago, I said, man, you got him. You have this long contract with sale. I don't know if he'll ever be the same guy again or even close to it. I didn't know what to expect, even though he always says the right thing. He's always a guy who says, hey, I'll pitch out of the bullpen if you want. I'll do this. I'll do that. So I'm looking at him as sort of a bonus. Whatever he possibly gives them in the second half or in the playoffs is just a bonus. I'm not relying on it. I'm not doing the old, hey, this is their trade deadline deal. They got they got Chris Sale. I'm going to yeah, say, yeah. If, he, if he factors into the rotation, maybe he takes Garrett Richards' spot, maybe he takes somebody else's spot, then great. But I would also want to have another plan in place because that guy, the way he delivers the ball so violently and he's so tall. He's so thin. It's kind of amazing. He's pitched as long as he has in his career already. And now coming off this major surgery, I'm still a little like wait and see mode with him.
0: I agree. Cause the, the delivery that he brings is not an orthodox delivery at all. It's not the classic three quarters or over the top. Like this right. is a, this is a delivery that's just like, let me just whiplash it and sling it to home plate and it's like whoa buddy hey how are you going to be able to withstand pitching 200 major league innings like and and my biggest critic criticism of the contract was directed at the fact that he had not pitched 200 innings in Boston since coming over from Chicago from the White Sox and that deal which which included Johan Moncada And I was right. He got injured late in that 2019 season, obviously missed all of last year, and now he's on track to return for the 2021 season. But the other part of the team that I look at that has surprised me the most really has to be how well J.D. Martinez has rebounded after a future 2020 season. And I think that people are kind of taking it for granted in a sense of, well, we always knew that he could hit. But the, my big thing was the videos were taken away, like his access to the, onto videos. We talk about major pl- um, players having routine and the importance of sticking to that routine. But to see him return back to 2019, even 2018 form, has been a bit of a, of a surprise for me. Is it fair to say that J.D. Martinez's return to form has been one of the key reasons as to why the Red Sox, as of now, have the best record in the American League.
1: Yeah, and actually, I think it's a great point because I'm with you. I'm probably one of those people that did kind of take it for granted and said, well, this guy was an all-star. He was a triple crown candidate, and he had a bad year, and he'll be back. But there, I don't know why I thought that. Like, there was no guarantee, and I think he... He is more comfortable with Alex Cora. I think that's maybe something that we've noticed, right? Not only was there no video last year, but Cora wasn't there either. Mm -hmm. He even made kind of excuses, but also tried to explain it away. You remember going back to last year when they were trying to figure out how the season was going to go. Remember, they were all down spring training. Then they pulled the plug and they're like, well, we don't really know what we're going to do for a season. And Martinez even said, yeah, they kind of snuck up on me. Like I didn't really know we were going to even have a season. Whereas this year, he just showed up much more locked in, much more prepared uh, but yeah of course I mean if you have somebody like him with Bogart's endeavors uh, Hunter Renfro coming on but like if you have those guys in the middle of your lineup, I mean, you're in every game and that's the other crazy thing about this team is all the comeback wins yeah like all yeah. The, they've been trailing in so many games and they have the ability to to get to you and and yeah Martinez has been, been great like he he's just what he was in you know 20 2018 20, 2019 20, it's been awesome to see in terms of the lineup one of the key aspects of this lineup that
0: I felt at times this team lacked was a bona fide leadoff hitter now recently with right. the emergence of Kike Hernandez it seems to be as if the Red Sox have found that guy that can be a consistent leadoff hitter do you think that Kiki Hernandez will be able to hold on to that leadoff spot from now through the end of the regular season? Or do you think that Red Sox and Haim Bloom will look towards the trade market as we get closer to the July 31st trade deadline to look for a bona fide leadoff hitter?
1: I would still look for another leadoff hitter. And I know that Hernandez has been good recently. And part of it was uh, Cora had him leadoff for so long and he struggled. He's one of the worst leadoff guys in baseball. The leadoff numbers are still at the bottom of the league, but then he moved him down in the lineup for a while and he started to feel a little bit more comfortable and then he put him back at the leadoff spot and we've seen the results. So it might not be quite as pressing of a need as it was say two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. but I still like the idea of somebody else there. And uh, I know, we, we had Will Fleming on the show the other day, Voice of the sox and he was talking about you know, Whit Merrifield. like we just saw him in a, in a series there with the Royals, like somebody like that and and if you could get either a, a second baseman or another outfielder and kind of do two birds with one stone, get a leadoff guy, strengthen the, the the just the the whole lineup I think would be better. So yeah, that that's still maybe the number one need, I think for Heim Bloom at the deadline is probably a guy that could be a legitimate leadoff hitter. How surprised
0: are you by the strong performance of the bullpen in the first half so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, really, really surprised. And Barnes, uh, the way he started the year, I certainly didn't see coming because when they first acquired Adam on I was like, well, maybe they'll just make him the closer. Yeah. And yeah. he, he kind of struggled a little bit early, but then got everything under wraps. But yeah, that's another one where I still would say the rotations the most surprising, but maybe right after that is... The bullpen because we looked at it and like oh man this isn't going to be very good and they're going to have to get an arm or two at the deadline if they're going to try to you know make a run at the playoffs but you're looking at it now and you got more guys in the pen that you can count on than you can't oh, which yeah. is funny because you know last season there was no I mean you didn't want anybody out there like it was just a mess every time somebody went out there you're like okay there's more runs whereas this year it's it's amazing how many guys you feel pretty good about Two years ago, I completely
0: blasted Dave Dombrowski when he was here in his lackadaisical approach to, oh, well, we don't need to worry about taking care of the bullpen. Uh, we'll, we'll just figure it out on the fly. And it, and it wow. burned him in the ass. This right. time around, it just seemed like Bloom had an idea and a plan. Once he knew <laughs> that we were going to, in fact, have a full 2021 season, that, hey, we need to have a bullpen. We need to have some sort of a plan or an idea and, and it, it seems like they have done a better job with in terms of roster construction than their all rival the New York Yankees have. Now, I want to touch on the Yankees for a moment because as much as Red Sox fans may make fun of you know the Yankees and oh by the way, I'm a Yankee fan heads up. Um, so <laughs> so um, but like if you're watching and you're listening to, what Aaron Boone is saying to the New York media and the people who cover the team every day, does it appear to you that this is a man who just seems as if that he is losing control of this team and, and any sort of prospect of anything drastic that could help spur a turnaround in New York for the Yankees this season? Cause there's currently six and a half games out of the first place in the AL
1: East. Oh, they're a mess. And I love it as a Red Sox fan, as a lifelong Red Sox fan. I love it. (laughs) I just love it. Aaron Boone, I'm with you. It looks like he's lost it. Brian Cashman is just like clueless. And like when when he's done interviews, he's like, I don't know what to do. There's uh, rumors or reports that should they trade Aaron Judge? Like they have lost their minds after obviously spending a ton of money on Garrett Cole, spending a ton of money in other places. And then to be not only looking up at the Red Sox, but looking up, on the, looking up at the Rays, looking up at the Blue Jays, and just being a, a complete mess right now that you you got to admit, if, if the late George Steinbrenner was here, mm-hmm. I don't think Aaron mm-hmm. Boone or maybe even Brian Cashman are still in their current roles. I mean, I, I think it's gone on long enough where he would probably make a major move with one or both of those guys.
0: I, have a, I wholeheartedly agree, and I say this because being a native New Yorker, and I lived through and witnessed George Steinbrenner at the height of his powers. There's no way that any baseball fan or anyone who, who has followed the Yankees, whether you hate them or hate them or love them and and can admit and say that if George Steinbrenner was alive, that he would just sit back idly the way that his son, Hal seems to be doing. He talked about earlier how like, well, This like I'm angry, I'm frustrated, but I believe in Boom being the guy. Like, (laughs) I mean, the other day, the Yankees blew a seven nothing lead against the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, in which they (laughs) scored seven runs off Uh Shohei Ohtani, the two way sensation who is getting comparisons to Babe Ruth for God's sakes, and somehow, some way, they blew it in the ninth. And if that was not an indication of just how bad things have gotten in New York with the Yankees, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah, it's really – it's pretty staggering to see where they're at. They're, you know, hovering around 500, which is where I thought the Red Sox would be. Like, this is how wrong I was about the season. You know, looking ahead, I thought maybe the Yankees would be in the spot the Sox are in and and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's year four now for Aaron Boone, and, you know, last year was – kind of a weird year for everybody. I mean, they still got into the playoffs, but they got bounced in the, what the, 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 the division original. series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it hasn't, it certainly hasn't been all bad with Boone, but it just seems like they are now kind of really sputtering. And you got Giancarlo Stanton and that insane contract for the rest of time. It feels like they're never going to
0: no. be able to move by the way, because no team's no. going to want to trade for that contract.
1: No, no chance. And then, I, I I don't know about Garrett Cole. Like, I'm, cu- I'm curious from a Yankee fan perspective, do you, what do you think he's going to be the rest of this contract?
0: That back end of that contract scares me, and I'm going to tell you why. Because no pitcher who goes past the age of 32, 33, remains mm. the same as they were ages 29 through 32 of their contract. Right. The most recent example in terms of the big contract – picture who performance did start to decline was CC Sabathia with the um with the Yankees I mean you think think about it look at the numbers between 2009 and 2012 he right. was without question one of the top three or four pitches in the American yeah. League during during that time but after the 2012 season his numbers began to go down and a lot of it had to had to do with age, injury, and as well as, as we all know now, the alcoholism that he was dealing with at the time as well. But that's neither here or there. But as far as Garrett Cole con- is concerned, yeah. I'm worried. Because I'm right. wondering, in three to four years, is he still going to be the guy that can still throw 97 to 98, no spider attack. Is he still going to be able to have command of his breaking pitches and all? Is he going to still be that same guy? I honestly don't think he will be.
1: Well, and he's so important to you guys too because you look yeah. at the uh the rotation over there and it just falls off a cliff after him. Like you got Garrett Cole and then you're like, like who else do you really who else do you really like? I mean, my, what's Montgomery got? Like his ERA is in the low fours. The low
0: fours, yeah. Yeah.
1: And like it just nobody really d- jumps out. And that's why I think we focused here in Boston so much on the Red Sox rotation and saying, oh, man, Rodriguez better bounce back. They have all these health concerns, all this, all that. The truth is, if you start to look at the other teams, maybe every team besides the Dodgers, and say, what is their rotation really made up of? And even if you have a guy or two that you like, nobody really likes their third or fourth starter, and nobody likes their fifth starter. And so the fact that the Red Sox – 2345 guys have all kind of overachieved and then all the Yankee 2345 guys have all been worse that's that's why you're here that's where you're at <laughs> yeah for example
0: remember the guy from 2017 with the infamous thumbs down like that's me right now i mean not not as not as much gray hair as you could tell but what i mean what do i know but <laughs> but like it's it's really maddening to watch in terms of what's going on with the with the Yankees but even then i give the Red Sox credit and I'm speaking at, not as a fan, but as a radio host and, and broadcaster and as well as a podcast host, that, hey, the Red Sox, they seem to have figured it out thus far. There's still another 80-plus 80, 80 games left to go, or, or in, in this case, 70, 77, 78 games left in the season. But if you look at the AL East right now, mm-hmm. are you currently convinced that this is their division to lose? Because I had – Jared Karabas on the previous episode say that he believes that the AL East is the division for the Red Sox to lose. I'm not necessarily convinced because you still got the Tampa Rays to consider.
1: Yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. I just think the, the start that the Red Sox have gotten now to, the expectations have now changed. I think their current roster combined with what they can do at the deadline and what they hopefully will do at the deadline. Like this is a team that is without a doubt are going to be a buyer. I think they have the pay role flexibility. They have a decent enough minor league system. Now after the last couple of years, it was horrible, but now yeah, after the last yeah. couple of years, it's not bad. So they can make some trades. And I just look at Tampa and you know, when Tyler Glasnow goes down, that rotation turns into a mess and they got to go with openers and they got to do with all this other stuff. So even though they have overachieved, they had that crazy long winning streak, but they still couldn't put the Red Sox away. And in Mm -hmm. fact, they're still trailing them by three and a half. So I would have to agree with Carabas. Like if you're just talking about the division, I at this point now would be upset, disappointed all that if the Red Sox didn't win the division. Now, once you get out of there, once you're talking about the Astros and the A's and things like that, it's a different story, but just for the division between Toronto, New York, and and Tampa. Now, nah, the Red Sox should, should win it now.
0: I, I, as a baseball fan, agree, because even as a Yankee fan, if, if Yankee fans would have sit here and say, well, you should have a bit more faith in your team. Well, um, hello, have you not been watching? Right. You, I mean, listen, do you believe in a home run or nothing type of offense? No. Oh. What made the Red Sox so damn special in 2018? Their ability to hit with two strikes? Runner scoring position in two outs. And those, if you don't think those things matter in October, and I told Yankee fans this after he lost to the Red Sox in the division series, if you don't think if you don't think that those things matter, watch the Red Sox for the rest of October. Go go and watch them. Because those are the things that helped you win World Series in the past. Like, you can't sit here and try to be home run happy and think you're going to get the three-run home run win in the postseason in October, we have seen historically that you will run into buzzsaw pitching, the best pitching there is. You can't slug your way to a World Series title. Go and look at, at every single World Series title and that's been won in the last 20 years. Not one of them has slugged their way to a World Series title. You needed pitching. I mean, 2001, you had... Shelling and Johnson with Arizona. 2002, I mean, you, you had, obviously, the emergency of, of Francisco Rodriguez in the bullpen alongside with Troy Percival. That, that, that ended up being the big difference. And then the Marlins in 03, you had Josh Beckett. Future Red Sox, also big part of 07. 04 Red Sox, you have Pedro and Shelling. 05 White Sox, you had Mark Burley. You had, like, John Garland, like, and Jose Contreras, for God's sakes. But the point remains... You're going to run into elite pitching and you can't slug away to a world series title. And I feel like that's, that's the biggest problem with the Yankees right now.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if some of that has to do with the ballpark that they play in and they just think, Oh, because we play here, like we will run into those home runs and like, that's how all of our offense is going to come. But I'm with you. Like, yeah, you can get the timely hits. Like, you know, David Ortiz, uh, they had a career of it, you know, Ortiz and Manny were huge for the first couple of world series. And then Ortiz was a monster in that, in that 13 playoff run. Mm -hmm. but you're right. The pitching, I mean, how many times did Madison Bumgarner just go lights out for the giants? It was just such a weapon or Verlander or any of these guys were just so dominant that you need at least a couple of those guys and all those power arms in the pen. Like that Mm -hmm. ends up being Mm -hmm. really important. Like look at some of the teams that have won it recently and how deep they can go in the pen. Like their starter can go six and then they got three great arms to go, you know, seven, eight, nine, and it just didn't close it down. So yeah, it's nice to have a good offense, don't get me wrong, but you gotta find you gotta win games in other ways, clearly. Absolutely.
0: absolutely. And I and I wholeheartedly agree. Now, speaking of winning games in other ways, I am absolutely concerned about the direction of the Boston Celtics because listen, I I like the hiring of Ime Oduke, Oduke as a new head coach of the Boston Celtics. But what worries me the most is the culture that's currently there. To me, the biggest criticism that I've had of the Boston Celtics is that they don't know what it takes to win. It's, And I was saying this last summer that they seem to have gotten complacent with getting to the Eastern Conference Finals three out of the last four years. And in the season in which Everything has gone wrong. I mean, don't sit here and try to sell me that, well, we got to the playoffs. Like, now nah, everything went well. well, no, everything went wrong in terms of locker room chemistry, on-court chemistry. For God's sakes, you have Mike Gorman literally go off on, on, on Toucher and Rich at, at one point before the All-Star game. What does that tell you? So I, my question to you is, if there are two aspects of the Boston Celtics that you look at this offseason and you're Brad Stevens. What are those the top two priorities that you're looking to change in terms of the organization and as well in terms of his mindset in terms of pursuing battle number eighteen?
1: Well, I think they need to first and foremost figure out: Is Tatum and Brown gonna work together? Is this is this worth another shot? And I think the answer probably should be yes. Even though I think we all we all love a big change, we all say, "All right, yeah, this, this change will make the fix." But you have two guys. 25 years old or younger Mm -hmm. that were both All Stars. Tatum should have been All NBA, and they're both they're both taking steps forward. There's not any team in the history of the league that had two 23, 24 year old guys carry them to a title. It just doesn't happen. Like you need to be a little bit older, you need to be in the league a little bit longer. At least that's what it feels like. And you can have so even if you have like a really young. Kobe Bryant, you have an older Shaquille O'Neal or a young Kawhi Leonard, you have an old Tim Duncan. Like there's just always sort of that, that counterpart. So they don't they didn't have that. So you need to figure that out. And I think Brad and Ime Odoka can talk about, all right, what's the plan for Tatum and Brown? So then if your decision is to keep them, mm-hmm. you got to find a point guard, like a real point guard and somebody to replace Kemba Walker and somebody whose whole mission is to make those two guys even better. And so I don't know who that is, but you got to find that. And I also like the idea of like a veteran guy who is way past his prime, but probably yeah, yeah. has that championship experience. You, you mentioned how they don't know how to win. I agree. And I don't know if Horford coming back is the answer to that. He was, I, a don't part like the, I didn't
0: like the trade at all. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead.
1: No, no, no. And okay. And then we can get into that, but yeah, so yeah. I don't think he obviously hasn't won a title. So he's not the answer to that, but somebody like a, a, like Udonis Haslam, there were were stories written about him this year, about how he's still in Miami, barely even plays. But what he is is just such a veteran presence and a guy who's been there, done that, can talk to the young guys in a different perspective than a coach would too. So those would be two moves, like an old guy, like literally your 10th guy, and then your starting point guard. That's what you got to figure out if you're Brad.
0: Now, I I mentioned about – how I didn't like the the trade in terms of Kimba Walker going to OKC for 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 Al Horford. My issue isn't necessarily with with Kemba Walker. I felt like that contract needed to be sent elsewhere to Siberia for all I care about. Like that contract was going to become an trust if it hasn't already. Because I was saying this during the season that that knee injury is, a, is going to be a chronic problem. It was not just going to be, oh, well, let's just rehab the knee and it'll get better, you know, give it with time and rest. The man can't even play back to that games without complaining about his knee barking. Now, as far as Al Horford goes, my issue with Al Horford is, remember at the end of the 2018-19 season with that whole saga with Kyrie and how he basically just bailed on the team at the, end of, at the end of that season? I felt like Al Horford in a way was part of the problem. Let me explain the fact that he was part of the problem for me, spoke volumes in terms of his inability to actually rise up to the challenge and become more of a commanding presence. I felt that at times that his soft demeanor was more of a detriment to the locker room than it was more of a help. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I think the whole idea, when you hear people referred to as a quiet leader, you're like, all right, I think you're just kind of, trying to throw a compliment at somebody who may not actually be a leader, like the whole, mm-hmm. the whole, Oh, well, you just kind of follow their lead. It's like, well, some players will follow the lead. Others won't. And then if he's not saying anything or he's just so quiet or you're right and that's a situation where, all right, he's probably thinking, all right, maybe Kyrie's the leader and whatever, I'll just do my own thing. And then you have this locker room explosion and then you're still doing your own thing. All right. Not great. So I, I don't, love the move in the sense that I don't think he's going to be a captain or like this great, you know, guy that could figure out Tatum and Brown. I just think on the court, mm-hmm. he's somebody that doesn't need shots. He'll play defense and he's a good passing big man. So I think on the court, he's a good fit. That's why I liked it. Cause Kemba's not going to play back to back nights. Kemba, the last two years, hasn't been able to finish the playoffs. Kemba's just not reliable. Whereas Horford at least plays He's still got something left in the tank, and I think it's a good on-court fit, but that's why you probably need that other player who's a leader type thing. And that's why I also like the change in head coach. I think, you know, Brad's voice wasn't really being heard in there anymore, so bring somebody else in, a guy who's a former player, uh, a guy who's also, you know, young, but he's been on a bunch of different coaching staffs. He's experienced the league. Like, I think, I think that's all a positive thing.
0: I wonder, in terms of Brad Stevens, I want to talk about Brad Stevens for a moment because I really thought about this when this all unfolded that Brad Stevens was going to take over for Danny Ainge, that he was supposedly retiring, although there are rumors right now that he may be in consideration for the Utah front office job and so forth. But I wonder if Brad Stevens or would Brad Stevens move into the front office? I begin to wonder, okay, if he wasn't able to reach the guys while he was on the bench, how much more effective can he be in terms of constructing a roster? And with that also being said, do you believe that Brad Stevens is the right fit as president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics? Because my, my honest opinion, I said the answer was no. And it was only because lack of experience and to me that absolutely matters. There's a difference yeah. between
1: I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna agree with you. I don't I don't know why he got the job. Oh actually, I, I think I might. I think he's still under contract. Yeah, they probably yeah. didn't want him to coach anymore. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was a little bit burnt out from coaching these guys, not being able to break through, like getting getting pretty far, but not nearly far enough for what we're expecting. And mm-hmm. I think he was ready to do something different, but he just signed that massive extension. Five years, they're like, videos. All right, well, at least this guy knows the knows the team. He gets along with the owners and all that stuff. So that might've been the easy thing. I don't think he's going to be here for the long haul. I think he does this job for a year or two, and then he's coaching in college. So that's another reason why I wouldn't have given him the job. Cause I don't think he's really going to be here for the long haul. Like Danny Ainge was just here forever, especially in NBA years, this guy was yeah. here forever. And now you're handing it to Brad, who I really don't think will be here all that long. The one kind of positive spin I'd put on Stevens getting the job is, there may have been things that he wanted done for the roster. He was coaching that Danny didn't do. Mm. And maybe it was just, the, the guy had the job for two days and he trades Kemba Walker. So, <laughs> I was pretty telling. You think it he was? liked Kemba?
0: It really yeah. was. I was like, wow, that's, that's fast. Tell me how you really feel. And then did you catch his comments in the press too? Like, well, I really, really like Kemba. I, I mean, I, I have a lot. I'm like, Come on, are you blowing smoke up his ass because you yeah. just traded him like not even 90 minutes into having a job as a president of a, a basketball operations? Is this is this what we're doing? Like, and then the other part of it that bothered me was do you think that the Celtics have an organization problem in terms of promoting within instead of thinking outside the box by going outside of the organization and getting someone who knows a thing or two about roster construction in the NBA and being able to put together winning culture especially in a market like boston where they still consider themselves to be the blue bloods of the nba
1: yeah i i i don't really understand why they didn't have a bigger search and and try to do something else again that's why i go back to the whole contract thing like they just didn't want to pay him to do nothing and at the very least i think you would have had a great case had they just promoted you know, Jay Laranega or something like that. They just took an assistant and were like, Hey, we're just moving everybody up one. I'd be like, what? So at least they, at the very least, they went out and got who many people think is the best assistant coach in the NBA. And they went and got him and they, they did a full search on that one. It sounds like they're going to let him pick some of the staff that's going to be with them and all that. Stuff. So that part's good. Yeah. The Brad, the Brad hire was the most puzzling thing of all. It was like, all right, Danny ainge is gone. You're like, Okay. He had a health scare a couple of years ago. He had the job a while. I get it. Brad's not the coach anymore. He's also been the coach for a while. And this was one of the worst years he's had, but Oh, wait a minute. Brad's taken over for Danny. Like that was, <laughs> that was the most confusing thing of it all. Like, do you think that Danny Ainge
0: was fired and that the subject did not have the PR balls to say, well, we're going to let you go. And instead, we're just going to dress it up differently so that it can at least look good say, so, hey, we want to thank you. You've done tremendous things for um, for, for, for the for the organization and, and so forth. You know, you were gift wrapped 2008. Let's be honest, Kevin McHale did you a massive favor. That's the only reason why you won the title in, in 2008. And I, and I and I say that lovingly, but let's call a spade a spade.
1: Yeah, I, I was on the air when the news came out. And I remember we just we were like, my first reaction was, all right, did he did these guys get fired or did they quit mm-hmm. because it, mm-hmm. it had to be one or the other? And then they're trying to spin it. No, you know, uh, Danny, Danny's retiring and and Brad wants to be the president of basketball operations. So like they both actually they both made their decisions. And I'm like, I don't think we'll really know the answer for another year or two Mm -hmm. so if Danny Ainge is running the Utah Jazz in a year and if Brad Stevens is the head coach of Indiana or Duke or something I think we'll know that they were both probably told to no longer have their jobs but but if Danny stays retired then you kind of have to take him at his word for it right like if he if he really doesn't coach or uh, run another basketball team then okay Maybe maybe he did retire. The Brad thing, I'm still not sure sure about. I think they probably thought, all right, we're keeping Tatum, we're keeping Brown, we need a new voice in there. But Brad, we like you and we'll we're paying you. So we'll have you <laughs> we'll have you do this job instead.
0: Oh man, like this the whole situation with, with Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge, like really blew a gasket in, in my mind. Like, yeah. Like even just talking about it. It was like, wait a minute, let me get this right you decide that you want to hire within and that's maybe probably part of the problem. And, and especially we talk about problems with the team right now. And you talk about, for example, um, Kyrie Irving because Kyrie Irving, although he hasn't been here for two freaking years, we're still talking about the guy as if this guy has created an environment for the, for the, for his key players, to walk on eggshells and I cannot for the life of me understand why is that. So my question to you is this. When you first heard the comments about Kyrie returning back to Boston and basically saying that let's hope that the fans keep it, um, keep it strictly basketball and, and, and not um, let it be racist and so forth. What were some of the things that you begun to think about? What were some of your feelings about that particular statement, especially as it pertains to Boston?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just – my initial reaction was, oh, my God, Kyrie really cares what the fans are going to do. Or he really cares if they're going to boo him. Like, I think he, he's just so thin-skinned and sensitive, and he knows that if he puts this out there and it's going to change how everybody talks about it, and then people are going to the game and they're like – i boom like does that make me look bad or like am i still allowed to boom or or what mm-hmm. because that's what i was saying mm-hmm. on the air that day was if you boo Kyrie, or there's a million reasons to not like kyrie irving the color of his skin not on the list exactly but there's plenty <laughs> there's plenty of other reasons right there's so many reasons all the different comments and we had all the quotes that he had and in, in his short time here it was just non-stop all the different things and so I just, it, it bothered me because you knew how the national media was going to pick it up and run with it. You knew how all now the other players on the team, both the Celtics and the Nets, they'd have to be asked about those comments. And you're like, oh my God, like, can, can you just give the fans this? We didn't, you weren't here last, or there were no fans last season. Mm-hmm. Then the other time mm-hmm. that he could have come, he was hurt. Like they hadn't had a chance to just boom. That's all they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Just boom. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe chant Kyrie sucks or whatever you wanted to come up with is fine. And then the first time he comes back, he had to say that in, in, in the press conference. And it was like, okay, forget it. Like this guy, it just, he bothers me more than anybody else in the NBA.
0: Like it was just like the, such a perfectly timed mm-hmm. curveball. It's like, you know, let me just throw it out there. Cause at least I'll change the conversation. It he won't did. be about me. But it'll be about is Boston a racist city. Yep. Hmm. Here we go. I, yep. I mean, here we go. We were having this conversation again. And now, Myself personally, I'm not I've never been one to shy away from having these type of discussions. But but at the time when it first came out, my thought was. This is my issue with Kyrie, the timing of it all, not the topic. The topic isn't the problem, the right. timing. So let me so let me get this straight. You in your final in your final season, decided that you want to act like a jackass. Lied to a whole group of season ticket holders at the guard and say that. I'll I'll be more than happy to stay. Like if if, if you have me, and then like you talk down on your teammates saying that. Well, these youngins, man, they they, they don't they don't get it. Like I mean, like, like you sound like a real a real condescending asshole. Like, mm-hmm. and then now suddenly you're coming back for the first time in what two years, and then you have to actually face the music. You're suddenly like, oh well, let's just hope we can just keep it strictly to basketball, not about anything else. Like really.
1: You're just well, and, and what was so crazy too is there's quotes uh from him like the year before that we we found pretty easily where uh he was asked about a situation. I think it was when Demarcus Cousins heard yes. somebody yes. say something mm-hmm. in the crowd and they asked Kyrie about it, and he's like, Well, I've never heard it. Like as at least as a as a player, like, I'm not doubting him, I'm just saying I I haven't, or like it wasn't not my experience as a as a road player. But then, like a year later, when there hasn't even been fans in the garden, now all of a sudden Kyrie's like well, I'm not the only one who has these stories. It's like, well, yeah, but you didn't have these stories a year ago. (laughs) And so like, where is this coming from? And this was, you're right about the timing too, because we had already seen four or five different incidents at arenas Mm -hmm. involving Mm -hmm. players. And some were very racial. Others were just, Idiots, right? Like you had somebody throwing popcorn, you had somebody spitting, you had somebody—I think—saying yeah. the n-word. Like there was a whole range of stuff going on, and then Kyrie just throws that out there, like, "Hey, let's hope Boston keeps it to basketball." And you're like, oh, "God sakes!" <laughs> ah.
0: I just laugh at it now because it's like, really, dude, come on! Yeah. Like you're, you're 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 killing me here. I know. But- In terms of the NBA itself, how about Chris Paul going to his first NBA finals in 16 years as an NBA veteran? Like, I was genuinely happy for him the other night when the Suns were finally able to wrap up their series against the Los Angeles Clippers. It's a two-part question I'm about to ask you. Number one, Chris Paul do you think that he is solely the reason why that the Phoenix Suns have been able to make such a remarkable turnaround, considering that just two years ago, they were and 1963 and the second part of it being seeing Patrick Beverly push Chris Paul to the ground. Do you think, or do you agree with the assessment made by Jay Crowder that that was when we knew that we had broken them? Do you agree with that?
1: Uh, the broken them part. Yeah, I'll say that for part first. Yes. I would have to imagine because Beverly plays hard. Beverly is very much like Marcus smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, with the difference of how they came into the league, yeah, smart was a yeah. lottery pick and all this other stuff, but just like their game and everything else the chip on their shoulder and they're kind of similar. And they'd been trash talking all game. And then that was the one like, it just, you couldn't pretend Like it was an accident. (laughs) That was just so clear to everybody. But Chris Paul, I'll tell you, he was pissing me off in that game because they're (laughs) up by like Mm twenty. He's still Mm -hmm. flopping around. He's trying to get Demarcus Cousins thrown out of the game because he's like, oh, he elbowed me, and he's like laying there like he got shot. And you're like, Chris, (laughs) like come on. He played great. Like he was, he was so good. Mm -hmm. Um, he's obviously a major reason why they. Were, you know, a team that missed the playoffs to a team that's in the finals, Mm -hmm. but they were, if you remember going back to the bubble, they were really hot there. Like they were one of the teams that got asked to go because they like barely qualified, even though they were way out of playoff spot, they got in there, they didn't lose the game but they were still so far out that they didn't qualify. Devin Booker has gotten better every year. DeAndre Ayton has gotten better every year. Mm-hmm. The roster construction is pretty good. Chris Paul certainly pushed him over the top. They also played the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard for a bunch of those games. Like, There's just been so many injuries in the all the West and the East. There's been so many mm-hmm. injuries, but yeah, finally breaking through a guy who's never even been in the conference finals, let alone the NBA finals and Chris Paul. And so everything just sort of kind of lining up for them this year. But yeah, now he's, now he's going to win the whole thing though. Cause otherwise he's still going to be on that list of, you know, great players that have never won
0: in terms of great players that have never won. I mean, <laughs> this. I mean, the NBA is, su- is such a hit or miss league now in terms of you could, try to create a super team but there's there's no guarantees that'll actually work I mean with all the respect to the Brooklyn Nets right they're 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 in that category the only guys we, in terms of the big three that have won something was Kyrie and KD but KD did it did it in the most cowardly right. way I would say I mean you yeah. went
1: you literally left a team that
0: that you, yeah, lo- Jeepers, that you right. I mean goodness grief you
1: yeah because you, I I am I'm not a fan of LeBron like I I don't like LeBron but Mm-hmm. LeBron, Wade, and Bosh grouped together, and so they all went in there. and, and Wade had won a title before, but it was years earlier, and yeah. it was with Shaq, and Shaq was gone. Whereas Kevin Durant literally did the "can't beat him, join him" thing. Exactly, they, they blew that big series lead to the to the Warriors, who had already won without him. Yep, they had the yep. best record in the history of the NBA regular season without him. And then he joins up. They win two titles. They would have won three had he not gotten hurt. And then he decides to leave. And what's hilarious is in one of the stories, there's a, a book. We interviewed the author. He, he followed around the Nets and talked to the Nets all about the last couple seasons and like the forming of that super team. And one of the notes in there about Kevin Durant is he apparently didn't like all the attention that Steph Curry got. He thought Steph Curry wow. got too much attention to go to the state. And he also didn't know if the team was going to be able to get a whole lot better because he didn't—he wasn't sure if Steve Kerr could uh, keep Draymond Green in line. And I'm like, if you hadn't gotten hurt, you would have won three in a row. They mm-hmm. would have won four out of five. That team was never going to lose again, but those <laughs> unless, unless guys got hurt. And yet Kevin Durant just seems like somebody who is always going to be upset about something. Like he's ben always Steve- going to be... They're very like yeah, he and Kyrie are just two of the most thin-skinned guys you're gonna you're gonna find. And
0: what and what blows my mind is that, and I was telling this to, um, to, to my bro um, a several weeks back, and I'm saying, you know, I hope Katie understands by going to Brooklyn, you're you're literally going into the 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 meat grinder that is New York. There is no bigger market in the world than New York. It is no bigger basketball market in the world than than New York. So if you don't produce. You're going to hear it. But the amazing part is it wasn't his fault that Brooklyn didn't advance. It, it wasn't. It was it was just injuries and and just bad timing. Cause he single-handedly lift, I mean, carried the net the Nets in games game six and seven.
1: Oh, that game six is one of the best games I've ever seen anybody play. Like that was <laughs> he was so good at that. But Kyrie gets hurt. Hardened playing hurt, but he wasn't near himself. Joe Harris couldn't shoot anymore and they were done. And yeah, Kevin Durant almost got him there like by himself. But it, it just, it wasn't enough. I'm going to be, I'm really curious to see what they do next year. Like, are they in it? Did those guys turn on each other? Are they dealing with injuries again? Like, is, is, I don't know. Is there gonna be a falling out? Like, I don't know what's going to happen because talent wise, they're still the best team.
0: Oh, w- w- without question. In my mind now, I want to switch over to, to, to hockey and, and, and some Pat's talk as well. Hockey-wise, man, if the Bruins are not at a crossroads, I don't know what is right now. Because this whole summer, I am going to be, I mean, both on, on air, podcast, writing, I'm going to be up their keister. Like, if they don't figure out a way to address the bottom six forwards. And it's beginning to piss me off that I look at teams like Toronto. Hell, I'll even give t- I-, I give teams like Tampa Bay credit. Don't forget the whole Saturday Capture Convention nonsense and whatnot. But look at their rosters, though. Talent. You need to have all four lines. The Bruins, they only have two. So my question to you is, with all of the question marks that the Boston Bruins are going to be facing this summer, whether if it's extending Taylor Hall, what do they do with Tukarask? Rask? And is is sketch is due to become an unrestricted free agent. What do you see the Bruins doing in terms of trying to upgrade this roster for the 2021-2022 season while taking into account that they have the expansion draft coming up in terms of the Seattle Kraken?
1: So I look at those three guys that you mentioned the three big free agents that they have, I actually would be willing to bring them all back, but at a price. And the reason why I think it's very clear, if Tuka and Krejci take say half of what they were making before, which they were the two highest paid guys on the team. Yeah, so it's not yeah. even that outrageous at their age and their play. Plus the injury that Tuka is having actually, you know what? <sighs> the, so, because Tuca is not going to be ready for such a long time, you might just have to rip the bandaid off of that one. You yeah, might just yeah. have to say, we're going with Swayman and maybe we're going to go with another uh, veteran guy because I just think that's it's so sticky that he's not going to be ready for the start of the season. You may have to just move on from him either way. You're freeing up money there. You're going to free up money with Kraychie, either taking a pay cut or leaving. And then I think you can get Taylor Hall back at not an outrageous Uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins just signed for 5.125 million a year, which is, which is like, why? (laughs) So I don't think Taylor Hall's gonna, (laughs) I don't think he's gonna, you know, break the bank. So you'll have that money left over to deepen your team. Like to your point, the, the, the third line was atrocious, like all, almost all season, almost all season. It was bad. And then because of injury, you know that third pairing defensively ended up being pretty bad. Even the second pairing because of all the injuries that they had. So you just exactly. need to you need to lengthen the I, I would try to get rid of Debrusque. I would try to just get rid of him. I that guy's been a healthy scratch too many times because of lack of effort. Mm-hmm. So I talked to the free agents. I try to get them all to come back on, on cheaper deals. I say see you later to Debrusque and then you hope that Don Sweeney can find some some good moves. Like like the Craig Smith move I thought was good last year. Like I got – like so like more guys like that that you can kind of bring in here and you're right that you're not having just what like when the third line was out there in the playoffs, there's like, all right, this is going to be a waste of a minute. Like they're not, they're not going to have any chances here. So they need, they, I'm with you. They need to try to strengthen the whole roster.
0: I I wholeheartedly agree. And one of the things that, that stands out to me is, you know, people talk about the injuries on the blue line, which I agree. Losing Brandon Carlo was a big, big series changing moment against the Islanders. And then also um, taking into account that Matt Grizzlick, I mean, Matt Gryzlik at times was not as effective as, as many people w- uh, would think. And I think that part of the issue for the Bruins is that Outside of McEvoy, who is clearly the number one defenseman and has arrived now that he's finished the top five in the Norris Trophy on um, voting, I look at the Bruins and I say, what are you going to do to, to, to bring in an extra defenseman, especially a, a left handed shot defenseman that can play alongside McEvoy? Because next two, three years, I don't think, I don't even think Grizzick is the guy now, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, he, he may not be. He had such a bad last game. So I just I have such a bad taste from that performance mm-hmm. alone. Cause I always thought the last couple of years I thought you couldn't you can't have Grizzlick and Krug. I'm okay with like, and now that they played together, but just my point is like, you, it seemed like you always had a small defenseman on the ice. And mm-hmm. then, so when they didn't sign Krug, I'm like, all right, as long as you have the other five guys are all pretty big. And now Grizzly can play on the power play and you put him with McAvoy. And I thought for the most part, he was okay, but you're right. He just was, was such a letdown. And that's another thing you're seeing in the, in the cup final is just sort of the defenseman on, on those, like they don't have the little tiny guy. Like they don't, they don't, mm-hmm. that guy's not there. And so the game, the game isn't insanely physical, but it's also not all finesse by any means either. Like we've seen in some of those series that you need to be able to throw your weight around a bit. And if Grizzly can't do that, they got to find somebody who can, or at the very least kind of move him down a little bit and don't have him on that, that top defensive pair anymore. I never viewed him as a top parent defenseman
0: period. I mean, call me crazy. Even when, even when they let go to Char, let him walk to go sign with the Washington Capitals. Last December, my thought was: Resnick is not a top pairing defenseman. He's maybe a, he's maybe a second pairing at best. And the fact yeah. that he moved him up to play with McAvoy was like, ah, I, I listen. I know they played they played together at BU. True story. But it's like, huh? Yeah. So you will put a guy who's six one or a right handed shot defenseman with a guy who's another Tory Krug-esque type of defenseman, and it's like, okay, at some point this is going to break down. At some at some point, in terms of physicality, size, mm. and to me, I think the Bruins are at a point where they have to make like some gutsy decisions along that blue line. Now, speaking of gutsy decisions, the Patriots mm. they better pray that Cam Newton actually works, because. I made a video on Twitter the other day that went viral that has last time I checked, I think it was approaching 50,000 views. I kid you not. And I basically said, listen, in response to Cam Newton's videos and so forth, my thing was, listen, the videos are cute, but I don't give a damn about the videos. I care more about, can you perform on the field? Prove to me that you can't play that you can't perform at an NFL high level not the garbage that we saw in 2020. And when I tell you that I, I got people who who understood exactly what I was saying and people that were like, well, you, you look at this bandwagon ass fan. Well, look at this guy, this, this guy is this, this guy is that. It's like, my video is exactly, and my take was exactly why I knew I had a point to begin with. So I'll ask you this. Is it fair to say that Cam Newton Has a lot more to lose in 2021 as the quarterback of the Patriots than than he does to gain.
1: Well, yeah, I mean he could lose his job. I mean that's so I'm with you. Like I think he could definitely lose his job. That seems like it should be on the table this year because he drafted a guy in the first round. Every single team that drafts a quarterback in the first round. Is just waiting to start that player. Some wait a day, like Joe Burrow, immediately as the, the starter. Others wait four years, like Aaron Rodgers, but they still, they're just waiting to give the guy the job. And it felt like Stidham was just never going to take it last year or be given it or whatever. Just, it just, that wasn't going to happen. And now, because the team is actually good around them mm-hmm. and you have that guy that you just spent such a high draft pick on. Cam Newton has to play well, or he's going to be gone. At least that's my hope because bill defended cam all last season. And then he immediately re-signed him in the offseason. And when he drafted Mac Jones, he said, cams our starter. And I'm like, what is all the praise for cam Newton? So here's my fear. Here's the one scenario where he doesn't play great. And he keeps his job. The, if the defense is great, if the running game is great, which it could be, it's a good offensive line. Damian Harris is really good. Mm-hmm. And if the, you know, the, the tight ends and the new receivers they got are good enough where they get out to like a six and two start to the season and he's throwing 150 yards a game and like a mm-hmm. touchdown and a pick or two pick, like they could win that way with him playing poorly and he might stay in there. But I feel like that would also just be bill Belichick stubbornness. Because that's what it would be. Right. Because at some point if, if, if camp's still struggling and you don't give the, to Mac Jones, it's like, what, why not? Like, why not start the future now? Cause that's what Jones is. So I'm, yeah, I'm with you. He, he definitely should be at a place where he could lose his job. But it felt like at times last year, the only person in new England that thought he should have the job still was bill was the guy, mm-hmm. the one guy making that call. And the thing that had me most
0: frustrated when I look back on, on, on last season, even as we be, were about to hit training camp in what three weeks, which is yeah. it's, it's, it's exciting to just think about, is how is it that Cam Newton, who was praised so much by Bill Belichick, given the same praise that Tom Brady was looked were looking for especially towards the end of his tenure as a quarterback of the Patriots. And I think that I brought up, and and I'm glad I didn't make a video about this on Twitter because I have a funny feeling that if I did, not only would this video go viral, but the vitriol that I've been receiving will be even worse. So let me get this straight. A quarterback who we all saw regress in 2020, excuses and all. I mean, listen, I am I feel bad that that he had COVID. He came down with COVID. know at, at towards like early part of October I get that fine I mean I can't really I never had COVID thankfully but but goodness why are you so fast to praise Cam Newton when you wouldn't even pass gas in the direction of Tom Brady for God's sakes like am I crazy or something
1: you're not crazy, and I th- in fact, I think they're related. And I guess I would even spin it on you, and I would say, how often did Tom Brady speak positively of Belichick, whereas Cam Newton has only talked positively about almost Belichick.
0: almost to the point where he felt I felt like he was kissing ass.
1: Maybe I—that's one way of probably uh, calling it. But he was doing these different podcasts. He does these different interviews, and he loves Bill. Bill's cool. Bill's this. Bill's all that. And so I think uh, you're getting that. St- same kind of response from from Belichick. and I'm like all right is that just the honeymoon phase or what but that was all season and then he brought him right back he brought him right back and camp signed for peanuts and you're like what what is this
0: I, I flipped the day it happened I flipped oh my god
1: yeah I, I, I'm with you and I'm just like what is it but the way it was going is one of the few things I've been right about I was like either this season I'm like camp's coming back and everybody's looking at me like, you're nuts. You're nuts. I'm like, he's coming back. I go, what's, what else, what's their other plan going to be? Stidham. They weren't going to spend it. Right. Exactly. And that, that made my point even stronger. Stidham. Correct. Because Stidham,
0: I was like, all you Stidham lovers out there stidham's going to be the starter next year. You moron. If that was the case, then why was he pulled from the Kansas City game? Why was he not put in at the end of the season when the Patriots had nothing to play for? Like, it blew my mind the, the logic of some of these Patriots fans. Like, goodness. If if you're watching the games and you're looking for small telltale signs that maybe it's time to put, in the, to put in the backup, but you got nothing from Sidham, what the hell would make you think that he would be the guy in 2021? So when the day came that he got resigned, I flipped. And my reason for being so upset on the day that he was resigned, was so this tells me that Bill, you don't really have a plan. Your plan went out the window the moment that you traded him to, to trade Jamie Garoppolo to San Francisco. That was your plan. Yeah. But now you go out and you draft Mac Jones, and Mac Jones is an unknown commodity, he's a prospect. That's what he is. Now you're going into 2021, you go out and make all these additions. You go out and you sign Janu Smith, Hunter Henry. You you add Matt Judon on defense. I love that signing, by the way. And you're expecting another year of progression um, with, with Chase Winovich uh, at, at defensive end. And, you, and then you're getting back Dante Hightower as well. But if the single most important ingredient in all of this is still playing at a subpar level like he was in 2020 then is it fair to say that the and the aggravation will be even higher than what it was a year ago?
1: It will be definitely higher because the expectation with the spending spree is that they will be a playoff team. And oh, by the way, Tom Brady just won the Super Bowl. I don't know if anybody's been watching that, but Brady, Gronk, <laughs> and Antonio Brown, the three yep. of them all played great at the Super Bowl and they won it and they're coming here week four. So yeah, it's not going to be, there's no free pass this year. There's none of that. The expectations are high and there's going to be a legitimate guy. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm not a huge Mac Jones fan, but still he's a first round pick. Mm-hmm. And so if cam struggles, there's going to be, and also there's no fans in the stands last year.
0: True. So true.
1: at least at Gillette, there are obviously a few other places to work, but at Gillette there wasn't. So cam Newton has a bad first half. He didn't get booed off the field. Like, it never happened, and he never – and I, I don't think the booing would necessarily affect Bill Belichick. I don't think he gives a rat's ass about it. Exactly. But if all the craft – if Robert and Jonathan Kraft keep hearing the offense get booed, the offense get booed, they're like, what, what are we doing here? Like, we drafted this guy in the first round. Like, what is the problem? And I think that could be pretty pretty fascinating uh, just to see how that whole dynamic plays out and, you know, can Cam keep his job, and, and how how quick will the fans turn on him this year?
0: I think the fans returning is going to be one of the big storylines um, for the Patriots in terms of you were able to avoid the the vitriol and since when did Bill Bill Belichick give a rat's ass about the fans? But I do believe that, especially knowing that you got away with one year without Brady, he go all he does is win the seventh Super Bowl. No big deal. Ooh, like I mean. And now here you are, you, you go out and you spend, which you admitted, which, and I say you, I mean, Robert Kraft admitted that it was because we didn't draft well. Mm -hmm. So now this season, more than any other season, the drafting I think is going to be under the microscope even more than it has been in the last few years. Is that a fair and accurate assessment to make?
1: Yeah, I think I think this draft class, but also I think the last two draft classes, because now you know Bills always said that year one to year two jump is the biggest you'll see in the NFL. So even if last year you were saying that, hey, the draft class has been pretty bad, I don't think you were writing off last year's. Right. So the, mm-hmm. the big thing in mm-hmm. minicamp was like, oh, Josh Uche looks really good. All right, maybe he does. And so if he plays really well, that'll make Bills draft recent drafts look a little bit better too. But if he doesn't, like, there's really I think you can look at uh, the 2021, 2020, and even 2019. Look at those drafts this year. Mm-hmm. And if you have a few guys that, that are playing really well, well, then, okay, maybe you kind of, you back off a little bit of the bill, the GM takes that everybody has. But if, the, <laughs> but if not, We all have them. I mean, come on. Oh yeah. But if, but if those guys go out there and, and are useless and you're not playing any of them and you're like, well, where are we going here? And you got to either make in-season trades or you're signing street free agents, then you're going to say, all right, well, Maybe this guy shouldn't be making the picks anymore. Like I'm, it's it's a big year for for the young guys. There's no doubt. No, no question. I think
0: this upcoming fall could has the makings of being a really big fall um, for for Boston sports. And one of the things that I do wonder, and and this is more geared towards you, not in terms of the local teams. What I've noticed is. A paradigm shift, especially when it comes to the way that the local sports radio scene covers the team. Is it fair to say that that like after coming off what had been a dominant 20 year stretch, unlike anything that we've ever seen um, in, in any city across the country, that we're entering an age in which that championship expectations or beginning to be more tempered based on the most recent performances by the celtics the bruins and as well as the as well as the um the patriot patriots bruins and the celtics as well
1: yeah i think well let's take the patriots first like i think when tom brady wasn't there nobody thought they were going to win the super bowl but for a 20 year run or i guess well, like 19 year run yeah you thought they were going to win the Super Bowl every year, or at least you thought that they had a chance to, right? Not that you would bet on it every single year, but you're like, this is going to be a team that's in the mix, like every single time. And then this year they weren't. And it was sort of one of those like, all right, how, how, do, you, how do you attack this? Because it was, it was a bad plan. There was no quarterback plan. But then you also have the other side of it where you're like, you just had a 20-year run. Like no team has ever had a 20-year run. And now you're up here complaining about it.
0: you sound like a bunch of spoiled pager fans shut up like i'm like
1: like, really like good god like yeah but but also like well i I know but i want to see a winner and i'm used to seeing a winner and my whole point last year was uh and i'll I'll get back to the other teams too but my whole point was even if they were seven and nine last year but they had say justin herbert as their starting quarterback yeah i would say all right it's a plan it's a it's a it's part of the rebuild and they'll be back But when you're seven and nine and you still don't know who your quarterback is and you have no idea at that point, beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of the year, you had no clue. That's where it was frustrating. I think that was definitely warranting of of criticism. As for the other teams, it's interesting because it seems like they're in two, like Bruins and Celtics are in two different spots where the Bruins were so close game seven, a couple years ago, cup final didn't win it. And so many of those core guys are still here and they're all getting older. And you're like, man, if they don't, Get back there soon, then we know that it's going to be the long haul. Whereas the Celtics, you're kind of watching it saying, Are right, they got these two young guys? Like, are they going to be able to break through? Because for so many years, it was, Well, LeBron's in the east, so you're not getting through LeBron. It's like, Well, LeBron's not in the east anymore, and so mm-hmm. you should be that next team, but they've mm-hmm. kind of taken a step back, like they're further away than they were, even when LeBron was in the east, and so. I think there's hope but there's more patience with the celtics than probably any of the other three teams just because of how young the stars are
0: you know one of the things that that i've always admired and specifically talking about what we both love radio and especially like 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 boston radio in particular is that this city and region has not had any shortage of like of of personalities that have, have had such a profound impact on, on a city, on a, on a sports scene and so forth. The news broke the other day about Glenn Ordway, the host of Ordway Maloney and Fourier on, on the afternoon show on, on EEI. He is gonna be retiring at the end of August. When you first came to EEI, did Ordway have any sort of impact on you as a person and, uh, and as well as your career? And if so, what has he meant to you as a colleague and as well as someone who, who is now, um, who's now established in the radio industry.
1: I mean, I think Glenn Ordway is the, the greatest, uh, Boston sports radio personality of all time. Like I, I think he, I think the big show probably was the first radio show or at least sports radio show I ever heard like grow, growing oh. up and cause he had been on the air for so long. Like he'd been, he had been working in the, business in some capacity for 50 years and so he was doing Celtics games in the 80s you know I was born in 84 so he was on the air like around that time then he was uh doing the big show for so many years in EI so that's probably when I first heard it I was probably like probably in the 90s somewhere in there and listening to him be like oh my god that's awesome like I, w- I want to do that like this guy's just talking about sports that's the greatest job in the world and then he's just always uh, been a fixture, like what any any like big moment, like you think about, like Glenn was on the air for that, like when the when when Tom Brady took over for Drew Bledsoe, you could have flipped on E E I and Glenn would have been talking about it, or when the Red Sox finally broke through, Glenn was talking about it. Like it's just it's crazy, and he's also, uh, I don't know anybody that that's worked with him that doesn't like him, and like that's also a rare thing. Like you run across a lot of people, you're not gonna get along with everybody, but Glenn has been. Uh, he's always been supportive. Like I, like I've talked to him. So when I first got to EEI, I was on the afternoon show with Dale and Holly and then he was on the midday show with, with Lou and Christian, but he was just super nice. Like right away, like super nice guy. He has a strong love for the NBA, just like myself. So every time I'd catch him in the hallway, we would always be talking about NBA game, like the, the double header on TNT the night before asking him about the Kings game. Like, that guy had stories. Like he he has a million stories, and I don't know if he'll write a book, but I just hope he finds a way. Maybe it's a podcast or something to get some of those great like Boston sports radio stories out of him because he can talk. He's got a he's got a million stories, but he's always just been he's been super helpful. Like I, I the the station's gonna miss him, but like he's had an incredible career. Talk about Orway, who ha- who has been an
0: absolute legend in. In Boston, another person who I'm going, to, I'm going to ask about now is someone that you worked with directly for what five years before he retired, mm-hmm. and that is the one and only Dale Arnold. Um, and when you first arrived and you began working with him and Michael Holly on the afternoon show, like tell me about some of the experiences working with uh, w- with Dale and some of the lessons that you've that you've learned from him along the way up until his retirement.
1: Yeah, again, Dale's similar to Glenn in the in the sense that I grew up listening to both of them, you know, wow. and, and at that yeah, point, I, like, I you know, I remember listening to uh, I guess Dale and Holly was more like 2005. It was like Dale and knew me prior to that. But like mm. Dale was always a staple of the midday show. Glenn was always a staple of the afternoon show. And even though Dale worked with different people, Glenn worked with different people, they were just always on the station, like they were just so synonymous with Boston sports radio. Like they just always were. You think about that chunk of the day from 10 to six, one of those guys was on the air forever. Yeah. And, but it was yeah. interesting because Dale was working with Michael and then he was working with uh, Jerry Thornton from Barstool and then Jerry left. And then I came in and I was just kind of interested on how we wanted that dynamic to work. And I'm like, you know, do you guys want a third guy? Like how, how is this going to play out? But No, they both welcomed me in, and I thought it was good. Like, I thought we were able to kind of – for having never done a show before with those guys and just being, like, thrown onto the air with them. Like, there's no, like – it's not like a basketball team where you can, like, practice or, you know, like, you're breaking down film. or Like, we didn't do, like, any off-air shows or anything. We just sort of jumped right on and and went. And, uh, no, it was good. And, like, like Dale was – was really helpful, like we did like the super bowl trips together, and you know, what did we go to, like three different super bowls together? Wow. And just wow. the guy's a, a pro's pro as far as uh, you know, just hitting all the checkpoints in, in radio. You're a radio host too, just like yeah. all the stuff yeah. that you have to have to do, like to prepare for a show and all that other stuff. Like they were good at it, and you just sort of it seeps into you, right? Like the longer you work with those guys, the more you just kind of naturally pick up from them. So. No, it was great. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll always be a, a fond memory in my career working directly with Dale and then working sort of indirectly with with Glenn. I got a couple of more questions um, left to, to ask.
0: Tell me about your journey. Like, how did you first discover your love for radio? And I, and I know you just talked about like your earliest influences, like Glenn Allaway and Dale on Dale Arnold. Um, as, as you begin to um, to work on your career and, and as the further along you got into in this business. What what was the first time that you can remember listening to sports radio in Boston and decided that this is what I want to do for a living?
1: See, I don't know if there was one moment like that because I also wasn't just a fan of the of you know, say WEEI. I also listened a lot to WBCN and WAF and like the personalities on there, whether it be Opie and Anthony or uh, I remember listening to like Nick Carter and just, I mean, obviously there's Stern, that's sort of like another whole level, but just listening to those guys. And so, so that's just sort of that was just like a, like a talk show and like so the combination I liked like so listen to the sports guys because back then too the sports shows were really way more just sports whereas now there's a mix like you're like even on our show we'll do dumb stuff that's got nothing nothing to do with sports but so I like I like that mix of it I always I was obsessed with sports like like most kind of kids I feel like are I was just obsessed oh, with sports. Sure, I always was like, I, I could remember stats. I could remember stupid facts about athletes and like where they went to college. Like it was just something that I could pick up with and I, and I liked right away. And then I was like, I think maybe I want to do play by play. I think I want to do like, you know, TV commentating or, or something like that. And then I got into uh, college and started doing play by play of basketball. And I did a, a weekly radio show with a guy that I played football with and just liked it and so it was like a fun thing to do and then when it went so i did that for four years and i'm like i think i why can't i do why can't i do radio like let me let me try to do that and like and it's funny because we even had like a, a college counselor and i was like i think i want to i want to do radio or tv i want to do like sports wow. radio and he's wow. like what about sales and i was like nope i don't <laughs>
0: I don't love how when people try to tell you, like, no, no, how about trying? Like, yeah. no, no, I know what I want.
1: I want. I remember in eighth grade, like, there was like a, I think at the class was like life skills. In my eighth grade, And I told her I wanted to be in, in professional sports broadcasting. And she was like, well, why don't you pick something that's a little bit more realistic? I'm like, all right. Well, wow. Thanks. Wow. Yeah. So I'm like, whatever. So I just, I I remember, and it's funny. I, uh, I, so the summer after I graduated college, just applied to a whole bunch of jobs. And the first radio job I got was, Uh, in Nashville, New Hampshire and Mike Manansky from EEI was actually working at the station and and I got in and I was producing a show or no, actually the very first thing I did was uh, they called it Friday Night Lights and you would Mm. go to a high school football game and you would call in scores like they had, they were had like a studio show going on and then they'd go to you. I'd be at like Manchester Central and I would call in and do like a little update. And then, you know, that was it. And so that job then led to like a one hour, like I was a producer and a co-host for like one hour, like six to seven at night with another guy. Mm-hmm. And then that led to afternoons at that same station with Mike Manansky, actually. Uh, and then from there, I did that for probably t- three years. And then the sports hub opened up. And then I got in doing part-time stuff with the sports hub. And then that's sort of how I got into where I'm at now but that's the key I mean that's what I would say to anybody that wants to get into it is be willing to start at the very lowest station possible doing the least amount of stuff but make sure the people there know that you are willing to do whatever like answer phones run the boards do all kinds of stuff in the field uh all of that but it's been I can't ask for anything more like I I love what I do and I you know I feel bad for the people who don't. Like, I know there are so many people, some of my friends, that like their job they don't like. And I'm like, I can't imagine having yeah, to get yeah. up every day and go to a job that you don't like. Cause i I've loved everything I've done for the last God, I don't know, 12, 13 years. And and it's a blessing because like I, like right. I, my
0: path and your path are two different paths altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up in New York, like I had WFAN, which I mean, I mean, which is the Titan in, in in sports radio, period. Um, in fact, their program director just recently retired, as a matter of fact. Um, and and like that for me, my first avenue was Mike and the Mad Dog. dog? Yeah. The Mad Dog. Like Mad Dog was my guy. Like there was something about him. And it's funny because I did a, a, a podcast episode with Andy Gresh. Um, oh, wow. And he was telling me a story about like how he um he entered at FAN like yeah, back i think it was the summer yeah, summer of 96 um and as well as like you know g- got to um to meet and work with uh with, with, Chris, with Chris Mad Dog Russo and and it was just so fascinating to just listen to those stories cuz like i grew up listening to that station and and like that was my first love so when i um when i went to college i knew that i wanted to go to school for journalism and so forth you know i first learned how to write and and I and one of the most important advices that I've ever gotten was, hey, you may want to learn how to write before you go on the air because you're going to absolutely need that. And I am so grateful that I listened because now being a contributor to to Causeway Crowd for Fan Sided, or in addition to being a radio host and as well as a podcast host, it's like now all those three things go are like going hand in hand. And and you're right about doing even the most menial of of tasks like, and I, i'm, I'm using air quotes because it's like oh like, yeah sure I was, I was an intern for 987 esp in new york in 2015 my job was to answer phones phone like, like phone screening and i was like i'll do it i don't care you want me to work 30 hours work. i'll do 30 hours You want me to do 50 hours i'll do 50 hours it and it'll make me no difference <laughs> But that first exposure really changed so much for me because I needed to see how it worked, what were the workings behind the glass, like running the board, and you know, like work you know, working with wide orbit and and like learning how to edit audio and clips to use for like the shows and so forth. So for me, that was my first exposure, like, Oh yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. So when I moved here, it was um It it was definitely it was a it was a grind. I didn't even I wasn't even on the air the first two years that I was living here in -hmm. Boston. And um and and, I mean that that all changed thankfully um thanks to someone who took the time to just listen to to give me advice. And that person was Bob Sos, who's a play-by-play voice of of the Patriots. He just took the time to just listen. Great guy. Yeah, absolutely um amazing to, to speak with. Did you have a person that you reached out to that was instrumental in giving you really good advice as you went along in your career? And if so, who was that person?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, Mike Manansky really was uh, pretty important in my career because and I've even told him this like when he, he so he was the studio host for that Friday night light show. And so he would go out there and we only had a couple of minutes on air, like each person I would have a couple of minutes on air. And Mm -hmm. I remember he asked me a couple of like follow-up questions after I was given my report, which helped get my personality out a little bit more, you know? So Mm -hmm. it separated me from just being like, ah, it's seven to three, like talk to you later. Like he, he stopped me, asked me a couple other like questions. And then it allowed me to go from there and kind of stand out, in my opinion, I guess, from that group in order to sort of get on the air more. And he was one of those big guys at the time too because he was working in Nashua but also doing part-time stuff at EEI and just saying, you know, for a while, you kind of always have to say yes. You know, they need you to work seven straight days or 15 straight days or whatever. Yep, you're going to do it. They need you to do a double shift. Yep, you're going to do it. Like all this stuff you need to do. And then the next thing you know, that to they turn to a time job this guy we, this guy he's been here he's always he's very reliable and things like that so yeah he was definitely one of the guys early on because I saw somebody who was at a small station who was also able to go to a big station and at that time were exactly where I wanted to go, and he was doing it and I'm like all right this is this is possible like it was that was uh, reassuring absolutely and last question i'll ask you um if
0: As you look ahead to the fall and even into the winter, what type of changes do you foresee coming to the Boston landscape? And do you think it will have any sort of impact on how like, Boston Sports Radio covers those stories and headlines for the local teams?
1: Well, I mean, I think you're going to hopefully get a playoff run with the Red Sox, mm-hmm. right, after after what happened last year where they were uh, abysmal, and hopefully look will get a, a turnaround. Maybe Chris Sale will be a part of it, so I think that'll be promising. But I, I really think it's going to come down to what the Patriots do. Like, it's still the Patriots are the most popular team by far out of the four, so it, it's what are they going to do? What is that? I, I still think the – Tom Brady returned to Gillette is going to be the biggest story. What the month leading up to it, and maybe even depending on what happens the month after, like that Absolutely. is that's gonna be the, the most watched regular season game, I think, ever nationally, let alone locally. Like that's just going to be such a monster game. And then, yeah, you sprinkle in Monk and Antonio Brown, but just Tom Brady versus Bill Belichick. We're gonna come at that from every possible angle. Everybody, like, there's not gonna be a take left from Belichick versus Brady. And I, I can't wait. Like, you can't talk about it soon enough. Like, we, I mean, hell, maybe tomorrow we'll lead our show with it. But I think there's just gonna be, there's gonna be so much of that. That's gonna be such a great, great story. Absolutely, I already got that game circled
0: on my calendar for the game to watch of the season of all 256 NFL regular season games. That's my number one. Uh, Rich Keith, co-host of Gresham Keith on WEI, my man, thank you immensely so much for taking the time out to come on the podcast. And I absolutely enjoyed speaking with you and, and picking your brain about Boston sports and as well as radio in itself. And I really enjoyed my t- conversation with you.
1: Hey, no problem. Uh, anytime. Absolutely.